Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the December 4, 2022 session, focusing on Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 13. Harmony. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm David Adams. I'm Bert Montgomery. We are in the second week of Advent, which is traditionally the week we uh, celebrate peace, peace on earth. And Lord knows we need some peace on earth. (laughs) A little bit. A whole lot. A whole lot. Uh, So, you know, there are lots of ways we could talk about peace, but given that we have Bert with us today and that we all are pretty interested in music in one way or another, I'm I'm curious if if there are some things you think we might could learn from music uh, about peace. Well, the obvious that I'll I'll start with since you mentioned me, the obvious is of course John Lennon, "Give Peace a Chance," but not just John, but his Beatle compatriot George Harrison, "Give Me yes. Love, Give Me Peace on Earth," mm-hmm. um, or Megadeth, "Peace Sells But Who's Buying." Right? <laughs> That's a collection of songs I would not have assembled together, but thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Now I need full playlists from Bert about each week in Advent. Mm. (laughs) That's a great idea. Isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So I would not even try to follow up Bert by naming songs that are about peace. Um, I couldn't do it if I went before him or after him. But I do think, I mean, I played in band and I have sung in choirs. And I think that when you are making music with someone else, you have to work together. You have to be able to hear the other people singing or the other instruments while you can hear your instrument also. So you have to play at a level that allows you to hear the whole of what you are creating. And it takes a lot of cooperation and, to make something beautiful. And I, I think that maybe there's a lesson in that for us when it comes to creating peace amongst ourselves. Hmm. I, I was waiting to hear Bert drop Peacemaker Die by Extreme or something fun like that. <laughs> no. It's a really good peace song. Go forever really this. good peace song, by the way. It's got a nice Martin Luther King Jr. quote in the middle of it. But, but honestly, when I'm thinking about music and peace, I'm going another way with it, which is the idea that for many of us, especially today, many of us, we get parts of our day when we're very troubled and having a hard time focusing, just attending to what we need to attend to. And music is what brings us back. And we have yes. our playlists that make us feel good. Yeah. You know, it's music that does that for us more than anything. Yeah. I, I think about the things that lead us to create music um, are often the things that are found not in wartime, at least, right? I mean, th- there's not a lot of music that's written during wartime. But in peace, there are love songs, there are ballads, there are there is music that is created and there's space for music to be created. Uh, it's very hard to be creative whenever one is under fire or one is in conflict. Yeah. So maybe, maybe there is something about uh, just the fact that music is created in often uh, times of peace more than times of war. Well, we are still in Romans and, uh, Bert, would you help us get started with this passage today? 
Yes, I will. And I'm not going to be talking about music, uh, but in fact, I am going to talk instead about Looney Tunes. Uh, my wife and I are huge, huge lifelong fans of, of the Looney Tunes cartoons. That's one of the things that we knew we could fit together and be married. Uh, we love them all, although some we love more than others. And there is one, though, of all the Looney Tunes that we both agree is always in our top two or three of all the greatest Looney Tunes of all time. And that's when Foghorn Leghorn tries to woo the Widow Hen. Now, the Widow Hen conditions her answer upon Foghorn Leghorn's ability to bond with her little son, who's a boy genius named Junior. Junior, Junior humiliates Foghorn Leghorn in everything, from making paper airplanes to playing baseball. Every time... Junior pulls off, with his smarts, mind you, something that is, well, absolutely impossible. And at one point, a flummoxed foghorn leghorn scratches his head and declares in his deep southern drawl, there's something going on around here that just don't add up. Now, you remember how our math teachers always insisted that we just don't give the right answers, we have to show our work? Well, Junior shows him his work. He gives him a piece of paper in which he had scratched out all these numbers and complicated formulas, and Foghorn Leghorn looks at it, turns it this way and that, admits, oh, yeah, I, I guess it does add up. Now, we all know that there are many different personalities, personality types, mental and emotional gifts, all kinds of various ways that we uh, think about intelligence. When it comes to appreciating and understand Paul's writings, I sometimes feel like Foghorn Leghorn looking at Junior's work. I can turn it this way and that way, and at some point, I'm just going to put it down and read the Gospels instead. But if you guess I didn't particularly care for studying systematic theology in seminary, you'd be right. Now, I have friends who thrive on that stuff. Paul seems to have thrived on that kind of stuff. Eugene Peterson describes Paul letter, Paul's letter to Romans as a piece of exuberant, passionate thinking. This is the glorious life of the mind enlisted in the service of God, Peterson says. Paul takes logic and argument, poetry and imagination, scripture and prayer, creation and history and experiences, and weaves it all together into what has become the premier document of Christian theology. So, David Adams, I'm glad that you are here with us in this episode because David Adams has one of the most logical minds anywhere. He's able to connect all the circuit pieces and make sense of anything. But I do, for the Foghorn Leghorn and me and those of you out there in listening land, I do think there's some general stuff here that we can all learn from, whether we can follow all of Paul's thinking or not. And stuff that I think that even some of our most diligent thinkers sometimes miss because they look at Paul simply as a logical person and Romans as a logical book, and they put it all together and miss, they get brainy stuff, but they miss the heart of it all. And Paul often warns against that, right? Looking at the reason or the law and placing it over the spirit or the heart. Paul says you've got to have the spirit or the heart over the law. But anyway, in today's passage from Romans, chapter 15, Paul is writing to the believers in Rome. It's a church he hopes to visit, a place he plans to visit soon. Paul is writing to believers, some of whom are Jewish, as he is, and as he reminds us, as was our Lord Jesus too, and others of whom are Gentiles. 
which are not Jewish. And for much of the Jewish history, were hated by the Jews, the Gentiles were. Paul begins connecting the dots, if you will, logically trying to build an argument to show how Christ is not only for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles. And this is a problem that plagues the early church through much of our New Testament. But then we, many of us who are not Jewish and never were, uh, who have become the Gentiles, who are the Gentiles, but have become the voice of Christianity, especially in our nation, but in much of the world, we have to be careful to avoid assuming that this means God and therefore Jesus uh, now excludes our Jewish siblings. In today's text, as he does repeatedly, Paul does not say that Gentiles replace Jews in God's eyes. Let me rephrase that. Because this has been used, as well as other Paul's writings, to suggest that. Paul is not saying that Gentiles replace Jews in God's eyes. Replacement theory of any sort is not of Paul. It's not of Christ. It's not of the prophets. It's not of anywhere in our Bible, and it's certainly not of God, period, end of discussion. Paul's emphasis is never on limiting God's family who is in and who is out, excluding others from God's family, but adding to, always expanding our understanding of who is in God's family. Because in the end, God's family is whose God's family is, whether we recognize it or not, right? Paul just keeps using his logical argument to help us realize it's always bigger than we think. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. One of the other texts uh, for this Sunday comes from the prophet Isaiah, and it's the it's the the passage about from the stump of Jesse or from the root of Jesse, which Paul draws on in today's text to remind us of Jesus's deeply Jewish connection, not just to King David, but through that even to David's father beyond King David. I want to bring us together because we're in a time of growing anti-Semitism in our country and growing exclusionary pride among some in our Christian faith against everyone else. Reverend Linda Pepe, a Baptist preacher, um, writes of Paul's letter to Romans saying that the Roman church was having the same problems we have today, tradition versus a new way of life. And then there are those who have found this Savior, this new way of life, from this shoot of Jesse that they think they can begin to exclude everything and everyone else, and they concentrate only on growing themselves. And Paul says, no, just because you are like Christ, just because you are in Christ, you still need to remember where you came from and the teachings of where you came from. Hold on to the stump you were growing out of because it is your foundation. And he quotes Paul quotes this words about the shoot, which goes on to say, in essence, and again, this is Linda Pepe, it is not for you to decide who is in and who is out, or who God calls and who God doesn't. Let go of your ideas of how you think God works, and just accept that God is working. Well, thanks, Bert. One of the things that really came out of what you're talking about is something that still sticks with me, and I admit, I just don't understand it. I don't know that we, any of us do, which is why do people think that somehow their faith is diminished 
by allowing someone else to share it. You know, how are we any less if God accepts others in the same way God accepts us? How, how are we being hurt by that, that we would want to exclude somebody else? You know, and, and when all you're talking about replacement theory and all, all these kinds of contemporary evils, if you want to call them that, they all seem to come down to this idea that someone has to have something someone else doesn't have or what they have doesn't mean anything. And I just wonder why that is. David, I think that's a really good question. And I think the answer is probably really complicated and also maybe simple. When you ask the question, I think about how we have a tendency to constantly compare ourselves to one another. And it seems like it, there's, I don't know if it's something about being human or if this is particularly stark in American culture. Um, but I think that the desire we have to compare ourselves to each other, or I guess maybe the impulse that we have to compare ourselves uh, makes the temptation to put others out and us in all that greater. That's what I think about when you ask that question. Yeah. And again, I guess the other half of that is I'm wondering why do we have this image that God's grace is something in, for which there's scarcity? Mm. It's like we're competing for a resource. And if someone else gets some, then we get less. Yeah. What, what was it? Catherine Chapman used to say, um, the arithmetic of faith is that love multiplies. It doesn't divide. Mm. When I was preparing for this text, um, this, this line about from the shoot of Jesse and the Jewishness of it all, and some of the commentaries I was reading that I quoted a few, reminded me of a conversation, and I guess I, I don't want to harp on interfaith dialogue and conversation, but one of the things that bothered me is, or that, that reminded me is several years ago, uh, it's probably a decade or so, uh, I wrote an article about interfaith dialogue here at Mississippi State's campus, and, and my Muslim friends, and uh, a Jewish rabbi, and some people from the Jewish Student Union, and various Christians would sit together and talk. And and I wrote about that, and I, it went in the local paper. And immediately, another pastor in town invited me to coffee, for coffee. And we went to have coffee, and he needed to correct my theology, because oh. it was wrong for me to assume that I could sit at an equal table with Muslims and Jews. And he says, we don't even need to talk about Muslims because that's just, uh, you know, that's Allah and that's a whole other thing, which immediately I thought, okay, you don't understand Allah. But he says, let's just talk about Jews and Christians because you're assuming that the Jewish God is the same as the Christian God. Now, this was a Baptist pastor and I didn't know what to say. I just stared at him like, like y'all are looking at me right now through Zoom. And he says, Paul makes it as clear as day that the God of the Old Testament gave himself through Christ for the Gentiles, and only Jews who will accept Jesus through the way of the Gentile Savior now will be saved. But Jews in general, that there's nothing about the Jewish God that is the same as the God of Jesus. And I had nothing to say because this is the text today, Paul is not saying that. Paul is emphasizing this long history of God working through the Jewish people, including himself, including Jesus, and then expanding it. Um, but there, that reminds me that we do have a strong tendency in our Christian tradition, 
especially in American Christianity. And I think it's gotten a lot of strength in the last decade or so here in the United States that we somehow, who are Gentiles, have replaced the Jews in God's eyes. That God does, like you said, God's love is limited. I heard someone else say that God has divorced himself from the Jews to accept Christians. And we, this is something that is not necessarily in this text, but I think this is a good time for us in our churches to talk about this because that is not in any way what Paul says, not here and not anywhere in any of his letters. Um, and we need to be addressing this because we see the rise of, of violence and, and threats against our Jewish friends and neighbors uh, around the country right now. But that's that's got tinges of Christian nationalism in it. Yes. Very much so, right? Yes. Yeah. Because, I mean, you can't even read—it's Advent, right? So we read the lineage of Jesus, <laughs> and, and it clearly ties him into this long Jewish tradition. Right, right. To which someone tried to explain it to me that it's all negated. The Jewishness of it is all negated. That they are saved by the what that being grandfathered in. But there's a there's a theological term for this. You know, I have to ask a Calvinist or something. But but there's a theological term for everybody, like King David, Moses, that through Jesus they are saved as Christians. <laughs> Yes, right. it, it reminds me of the famous theologian Bailey Smith, who said, God doesn't listen to the prayers of God will not hear the prayer of a Jew. You know, and I think both of them have the same initials. God help us. Okay, I'm as I'm sitting here listening to all of this, I'm also paying attention to myself, and I'm getting so angry. It's because people who um tout theologies like what you're talking about, Bert. One, they're just wrong. They don't know how to read scripture. And I don't have a problem saying that. Like, it's one thing to have different theological beliefs. It's another thing to completely read it wrong. But the reason I'm angry is that those kind of ideologies cause harm and often death because they stir the anti-Semitism like you're talking about. Um, and that causes people to act out and to behave in terrible and awful ways. Because they feel justified in doing so. That's right. Because they feel like they deserve something or that this is what God would want because, because of whatever crazy belief they have in their head. And you're right, Bert, that we do need to talk about it because a lot of times the harmful people in our society are the loudest. And it is important that those of us who seek a position of peace and hope and joy and love and seek to put good in the world and believe that Jesus loves everybody, we need to say those things. We need to be louder than the people who are acting out of hate and are causing harm. What we are saying is, is that this text in particular, I mean, even look at verse six, right? With one voice, glorify God, right? It's not, yes. you don't go around dividing people and saying, well, your voice isn't going to come into this and you need to be quiet over here. It, one voice, right? And that, one. that doesn't mean our voices sound alike. 
no. either, right? I mean, anyway, it's it just, to me, when we hear people of faith advocating for division rather than than togetherness, and that doesn't mean sameness. That doesn't mean uniformity doesn't mean, um, or what's the word I'm looking for? We don't have to all be alike or think alike to be together. Right. Right. Unity, not uniformity. Thank you. I had to get my five-hour quote in there. That's right. <laughs> Solidarity. Sorry, Bert, uh, I interrupted you. No, th- th- but here's the thing. We're in an Advent season, which is a distinctly Christian tradition, even though it arises from within the Jewish tradition, such that the earliest believers were all Jewish, right? Uh, the earliest disciples, all the followers into Acts and, and into Romans, it begins to spread into Gentiles. But even the Advent story uh, of, of God becoming one of us in the flesh of Jesus Christ uh, has Jewishness to it. Now, we don't invite our Jewish neighbors to celebrate Advent. It's not their tradition. But it does not mean that our tradition erases their tradition. So how do we, you know, last week was hope. This week is peace. The theme is peace. How do we acknowledge our differences? Because I can hear some of my my friends saying right now, well, obviously we would not be against Jews who converted to my way of believing in Christ as the Messiah. But what does that do for the Jews who do not, like my friend the rabbi? And I think Paul is dealing with this exclusion of any sort, whether it's ethnic, doctrinal, exclusion of any sort is problematic. So if we're going to come at it from a Christian way, which Paul does, he's going to show how you've got to keep the Jewishness in there, right? But we don't need to like say, oh, let's let's show that we're not anti-Semitic and invite the Jews to come celebrate Advent and Christmas with us, because that would be offensive to many of them, because that would be like we're trying to convert them. Most of my Jewish friends would say Judaism is not a conversion. They're not seeking to convert us, right? We're always converting them. Can we learn to live together? And can we learn to see that the God of Jesus is the same God of Moses and Abraham? Jesus says as much so that we could talk about God and what God wants us to do, which involves hope and peace and joy and love. Um, That Jesus is not teaching us anything differently Jesus is teaching us everything fully, right? Well, I want to circle back to where I was a while ago because it, it, I still keep hearing these echoes in what you're saying. And, and besides, you all said I would do this before the podcast began, so I was going to keep on going with it. But <laughs> one of the issues that, that we have, one of the issues that people really have throughout the world, and not just in the religious realm, but in other realms too, is when we feel there's not enough of something, we're going to fight over it. We can't have peace. If global climate change has taught us anything, it's that people are starting to run out of stuff and they don't have things. You know, it, we've been centuries of people wanting to have more money than other people had. I'm taking from you because I don't have enough or I want more and I want yours. We fight over that. We lose peace over that. But the same thing happens in our faith. If we can't grasp that God is bigger than all of that, you know, that there's no scarcity whatsoever in God's love and God's presence in our life. We have to stick it in one particular slot or you don't have it. We're going to have conflict. 
we just we're not going to agree. We're not going to be able to function together because for some reason we still think that God is so small that God cannot accommodate us all. God can't. There can't be a God who speaks to Jewish people in a Jewish way. You know, there can't be that because God can only be this. You know, and the slot's filled, so you're out of luck. Well, that's not the way it works. And until we can realize that, I don't think that we can ever really have peace either in a physical sense or in a religious sense. It's just not going to happen. You know, if I could give you an example, being a kid, uh, because again, this all comes back to me, to analogy like Foghorn, Leghorn, and, and Junior. I'm not the logical person here, right? So uh, I, I need a simple image. The Foghorn, Leghorn in me needs just a simple image, all right? Um, when I was a kid, um, as you know, elementary school age, my next door neighbor, we had, we lived in a small little suburb area outside of New Orleans with little fenced in backyards, little fenced in chain link fences. So, you know, by the time you're six or seven, they don't mean anything because you just climb over them, um, to each other's yards. Well, my next door neighbor, their family had a beautiful, beautiful collie. And that collie's name was Sparky. And Sparky, it was the friendliest dog I've, even to this day that I've ever met, Sparky would bark and jump and greet us at the, I'd go to the fence and Sparky would come and try to climb the fence. He would stick his nose through the fence to lick me. And everybody loved Sparky because Sparky loved, Sparky just wanted to love everybody. Right. And I think for me, my analogy, Paul can get all into the logic of it all. But for me, I think Jesus coming to earth and what Paul is saying about Jesus is maybe God's more like Sparky, right? <laughs> it's just, God's just out there to celebrate everybody. Maybe we should all be more like Sparky. I have a new image of God. <laughs> <laughs> well, oddly, that was pretty much the same, very similar to the story that Frank Tupper told us in the seminary about how to understand Jesus as opposed to other things too. And really? It was interesting. Frank, he, Frank he if Lassie. I recall, is from Mississippi too. Yeah. He used Lassie, but it was still about a collie and about the perfect dog who was out there for everybody. And it was just wonderful the way he told the story because he, he started acting like he was crying at the end. It was just really fun. Oh man, I'm going to, do you know if he ever wrote about that? I don't know if he did or not, but it was a fun lecture. Frank, oh, see, I wish I had Frank Tupper while I was at Southern. Oh, man. He was good. I had Frank for, for theology. God can yeah. only do what God can do. Yeah. So, you know, I've been listening to this, and it's been a great conversation. I, I, I am always struck by how hard we work sometimes to complicate things uh, in faith, you know. And, and sometimes that's what theology turns into is this heavy duty complication to try to sort out something. And because the question that, that Paul is dealing with and that we have been dealing with, right? Jews, Gentiles, who's in, who's out, where does God draw the lines? And, and at the end of the day, to me is, I don't know where God draws lines and it's not mine to know. And I'm not going to know. And what if God doesn't draw lines <laughs> or they're so huge, everybody's inside? I, I don't know. Why would I think I know that or could figure it out? Or if we talked for seven years, could we figure it out? When at the end of the day, what the scriptures call us to is incredibly clear, and that is to love one another and to care for one another and to follow God. And 
let God handle the rest, which we seem to have an incredibly difficult time doing, if we're honest. So I'm always drawn to, uh, just like you, Bert, an an image that maybe that gets us beyond the, the, the propositional chatter of theology sometimes. And the late Rachel Held Evans regularly drew us to the table as an image. And and I've read from other places where she talked about the table, but I, I pulled up a blog post that she did once where she contrasts the difference between feeding people and dining with people. The difference between feeding and dining. And here's how here's how she says it. She said feeding people means keeping the hungry at arm's length. It means sending checks now and then, making Thanksgiving baskets once a year, preaching about justice, and launching new ministries, all while sitting comfortably at the head of a tiny table, dropping scraps from our abundance to the floor. Americans are good at feeding people. Ouch. Mm. But dining with people, she says, is an entirely different matter. Dining together means sitting next to one another and brushing arms, passing the bread basket and sharing the artichoke dip. It means double dipping and spilling drinks, laughing together and crying together, exchanging stories, ideas, recipes, and dreams. According to Jesus, it means leaving the seat at the head of the table ceremoniously empty so that all are guests of honor, and all are hosts. Dining together isn't charity, it's friendship. So let's build bigger banquet tables. And let's invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, so that our house will always be full. We do need bigger tables. Maybe if we're busy building these bigger tables, and dining together will be less interested and less busy with the guest list. Thank you all for this really good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Faith Element Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.